You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I'd like to begin by thanking you for being such a welcoming lot. It's been good to be with you and share with you over this weekend. Thank you. I'd be glad if you'd turn to uh, just one page back from when we were reading Micah uh, to the book of Jonah, please. Much as I'd like to read it all to you, I'm not actually going to tonight, but just read a brief selection from the book that will reassure those who were here this morning that I don't plan to be quite so long tonight. (laughs) Jonah chapter 1, from the beginning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. After this, there's a couple of chapters of merry chaos and almost shipwreck at which point Jonah says, you can stop this home, not by turning back so that I can go to where I'm supposed to go, but just throw me overboard. And then he ends up in a big fish, and uh, then he starts to pray. Um, and the Lord speaks to the fish, and the fish throws up, and uh, Jonah is at the beginning of chapter 3 then. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and didn't bring on them the destruction he threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. 
Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been very concerned about this plant. Though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now these are my ideas about it, which you must weigh against the scripture, please. I want to share with you about the attitudes that we might have to foreigners. I mentioned the, uh, this morning that, um, that the Chinese in Hong Kong have a word for foreigners that literally means foreign devils. Um, I have uh, been in situations where people hate my particular ethnic group as well. In fact, I went to one conference on the Isle of Arran where they said the conference would be brilliant as long as there was nowhere from where I came from and I was the main speaker. (laughs) Some of us sometimes have problems with foreigners. It's interesting, isn't it? Jonah had a problem with foreigners as well. Trouble was, God wasn't actually prepared to sing from the same hymn sheet as Jonah. He had a completely different view about these Iraqis, didn't he? And it's very interesting that this book is there in the Old Testament, written for a culture that in some ways was profoundly monocultural. I mean, they used to refer to them as the Goyim. They're the not-us people, the different ones. And suddenly into the middle of God's book comes this story about God being interested in Iraqis. And interested in Iraqis despite the fact that the place was about as pagan as you can get. And they were behaving probably like the pickets in Edinburgh. And the question comes through, Jonah, what is your attitude to these outsiders? It's very striking, isn't it? I want to share with you a little bit about God's call here. Because God's call is really what we're here for, isn't it? What what are we here for? Why on earth hasn't God taken us to heaven? Away from all the complications of living around these sort of places. I mean, I know my, my, two of my children studied here. They think Dundee is pure brilliant. Um, but as friends of mine who said to me when I used to work in Budapest, and I thought Budapest was outstanding, and 
we used to have this slogan, yes, Budapest is beautiful, but it's not heaven. And why, don't, why doesn't he take us there? It is far better, isn't it? What are we doing around here? And it seems to me that there are two things that we learn here about God. The first is we are here for partnership with God. And it is quite extraordinary to me that God actually shares with this not very desirable believer his burden for Nineveh. Have you noticed that? He actually shares with him what he thinks about Nineveh. And what he thinks about Nineveh is is quite complicated. He shares the situation there. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Its wickedness has come up before me. It is an extraordinary thing because he, as it were, you know, if God talked in sort of crude modern idiom, he'd say, the way they're behaving, it really gets up my nose. I mean, it reaches me, it offends me, it, it makes me mad. And yet he says, and I want you, lad, to go and get involved amongst those people. I want you to go to them. I want you to communicate with them. And, and God doesn't play games. He expects things to happen because of that. They are a hell-bound lot, and yet God says they really need somebody like you to go into their midst, belong with them, and communicate to them. The interesting thing is, as God shared this sort of message, Jonah got the message. He heard it. You know, sometimes you're not quite sure what God's will is, but there, there was no problem here in Jonah, you know, what is God's will about this? He knew it perfectly well. It's not a problem of guidance. It's a problem of obedience for Jonah, wasn't it? And the book of Jonah seems to me to tell us that when God calls, he doesn't always get his own way. At least not initially. God actually allowed Jonah to make foolish choices. Ever been there and done that? Yeah. And so we find in chapter 1 and verse 3, he actually runs away from God. That's a hopeless task, isn't it? You and I have got to run, and at the end of it, you're caught. Because that's the sort of God we deal with. This story shows us that it doesn't matter who you are, brother or sister, you can't run away from God. He will pursue. He's that sort of God. The thing that I find most beautiful about this passage is that Jonah is one of those missionaries that I can really identify with. He's lousy. I mean, really, isn't he? I mean, you know, you you read some of the Victorian missionary biographies, uh, which are often quite sanitized, if you're honest, and, and you read them and you think, well, I could never be like that. You know, where did God find a Christian like that? I don't seem to meet them all that often. But when you read the Bible and you see the story of Jonah and you see, see a God who is actually prepared to call somebody who hasn't really got his act together. He's, he's far from perfect, even in his attitudes to people. I mean, I, can, I read this book again and again. It just reassures me that I'm not kidding myself that God's prepared to do things with me. 
don't you reckon? And 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 so you know. Oh, sorry, we've 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 got behind. Pardon me, I should have clicked you on with that. Anyway, that's that. There you are. There's the bloke. Let's explore a little bit longer, shall we? About God's burden for people. What sort of God do we worship? I mean, it's very important, your perception of God, isn't it? Sometimes, actually, even we Christian people, we, we get a distorted sort of view of God. I can remember once doing a convention in Australia, and I was praying with a bloke who was a brilliant youth leader. And in the middle of my prayer, I, I, I said something not very Aussie, like, Lord Jesus, I do love you. I mean, I was... I was up here somewhere, sort of spiritually, because God had really worked, and I, I felt, isn't that amazing to do something with my heavenly Father? And so I was a bit emotional, but I said, Lord, I do. And he actually had the cheek to interrupt my prayer, and he said, what did you say? And I said, well, I told the Lord that I loved him. And this, this, this bloke, he just stood there, and he cried and cried and cried and cried. I could have wrung water out of my, my, my sweater afterwards where he cried on my shoulder. He said, I could never say that to God. You know, for him, God was a sort of slave driver who was absolutely determined to knock him into line and to work him until he was ground into the ground. We counseled a person once at a Bible college training for ministry. Her image of God was actually of a rapist who was forcing her to do things that she really didn't want to do. It is extraordinary how the enemy can work in our hearts and souls. And often people run away from the missionary challenge because they're afraid that we've got a God who wants to spoil our lives. And so it's terribly important to try and enter into the way that the Lord in his kindness reveals himself in this Why does God want to take an Israeli to Iraq? It does seem a bit mad, doesn't it? Even in modern history to do that. Why does he want to do it? Because God says he is concerned about the wickedness of that city. Its wickedness has come up before. Now you see, Jonah tells us in chapter 4, or tells God, that he's learnt that God is slow to anger, which is a mercy, isn't it? I mean, he hasn't zapped all the sinners on the world. He's very patient. He is slow to anger, but he does hate sin. And cities like Nineveh, or Dundee, or Manila, or Beijing, or Shanghai, or Bangkok, can be incredibly wicked. And here it was. The interesting thing is, the wickedness of people bothers God enough to want to change them. Not to rubbish them, but to see change in them. He is burdened for these people. It still is on his heart as he shares it. With Jonah. He's also concerned about their ignorance. Because he says to Jonah that he is to go to Nineveh and preach against it. These people needed God's word. Now, 
Sometimes you share the word of God with people and they are so excited about it. Sometimes they are very resilient to it, but they still need to hear. It is a scandal that we don't give people warning. Ezekiel was told, if you don't give people warning and I've called you to them, I will regard you as a murderer. And he wasn't told that just in chapter 3 of Ezekiel. He was told it again in chapter 33. Because, you know, we get deadened to lessons we learn in our young years as we get older, don't we? People need to hear what God has to say about them in all its fullness. And the extraordinary thing is that Jonah is a runaway who's blown it in the past, who's been called to go to these people and has refused to do it. He ends up in the fish's vomit and God says to him, now will you go? And that to me is absolutely brilliant because it says to me, okay, you may have blown it in the past in this missions business, but I still actually am prepared to take you on board if you'll come with me. That is stunning. At least I think it's stunning. He wants to use Jonah. And, and the thing that he, he is concerned about with these Ninevites in the last verse of this book is he says, these people don't know their right hand from their left. They, they, they are just so mixed up and so clueless. I mean, increasingly our people here in Scotland are like that. They don't know who this Jesus is. Don't tell them to open their hearts to Jesus. It's just a five-letter word as a variant on the normal four-letter word. It's nothing. They don't know. And here is God saying about Nineveh, I want you to go, and I wanted you to go, because they don't know their right hand from their left. They're out of touch with God's reality and with the values that come with that. And so we find in the beginning of this book that God longs to communicate, not just to dig them wells, important though that is, but to communicate with them the heart of God about those people. Sometimes little kids can drive you absolutely balmy, can't they? But every now and again, they have divine insights that sort of really make you somewhat ashamed. I have one of those occasions where my, my, my son, who's, uh, who's one of these people like David that preaches to people, um, and, I mean, he's a minister, uh, and... <laughs> but as a little boy one day in our house in glasgow we lived in a a, a, a semi subterranean apartment in a mission center um, eric alexander used to call it the cave when he came into it and and the advantage was that the kids room had windows that opened into and a little bit higher so that the children of the neighborhood could come in and play through the windows and one day, Andrew came running in to me and said, Daddy, where's the Bible? I said, what do you want the Bible for? And he said, well, Amr and Muhammad don't know anything about Jesus. Do you think if I, I read them today's reading, they'd be able to catch up? And I thought, you can't go just in, in that mad way with a couple of Egyptian boys in the middle of Ramadan to... <laughs> do this. So I thought I'd give them a little crash course on this other religion, you see. Um, I thought somehow he would be more gentle, but unfortunately he went in <laughs> I said, 
the leader of your religion told you all sorts of things that are terribly wrong and if you don't love the Lord Jesus you'll go to hell uh, and it was sort of like the third crusade broke out and and I had to stop this evangelist rather clumsy evangelism and um this wee boy, I mean, he was six. He sat on the floor and he sobbed. Amar and Muhammad don't know about Jesus and I can't get through to them. Now, I felt at that time, crumbs, when did I last cry that I couldn't communicate with somebody that was unsaved? And somehow you see in the good book this deep concern that God has about not just about ignorance, but about the lostness of people. He says to him, 40 more days, and this place has had it. They haven't got endless opportunities now. Will you please take this opportunity, Jonah, to go to these people? It's the sort of, it's the sort of gut feeling of God that we see portrayed in Jesus when he sits down and cries over Jerusalem and talks about them as, as though he were a chicken that longed to gather the little chicks under his wings to protect them from the fox of judgment. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's incredibly emotional. I mean, we don't do emotion in most of our Scottish churches. It's rather, rather unseemly and... Uh, other sorts of churches um at least that's what they think in my church but i think jesus does do emotion and i think when it talks about the compassion of god it really is talking about the pardon me but the gut feeling of the sort of churn of the stomach i mean we don't say i feel it in my kidneys we say my stomach churned didn't you as you're moved with this awesome loss. This is the sort of God that we have. Deeply moved by the ignorance and lostness of the people out there. It's amazing, I think. And the thing that is remarkable about this God is he longs to be welcoming to people. I'm sorry, I'm not really helping you on the PowerPoint, am I? Can we go on a bit more? He's concerned about them, their wickedness, their ignorance, their loss. He is amazingly, amazingly welcoming. Did you notice that remarkable stuff from the end of chapter 3? God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways and he relented and didn't bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Jonah doesn't really like this, that God is, is so kind to the people that we don't like, who are terribly naughty from our perspective and foreign. And it is a most extraordinary verse there, isn't it? I mean, you know, it can actually be translated, God changed his mind, which is theologically very diff difficult for us Calvinists. Um, Sometimes our systematic theologies are a little bit too tidy for what God has revealed. But it is very remarkable. Whatever else it's saying here is if you will go and share with somebody, it does make a difference. 
it is that when people share the gospel that the judgment of God doesn't fall on some on whom it would otherwise have fallen. And actually, I can imagine the people who first heard this and they thought about Nineveh and what a threatening place it was to them. The very idea that God wouldn't zap them but would welcome them, they just sat there with them jaw dropped open in sheer, utter amazement. Is God that kind? Is he that generous? Is he that gracious? The people as bad and as different as that? And of course, Jonah really didn't like it at all. He preferred a God that would behave in the way that he wanted him to do it. Very difficult. But alongside this this loveliness and kindness and compassion of God, we also learn from this that that God is, is frighteningly awesome. The grace of God needs to be held alongside his awesome glory. For the God of the book of Jonah, next bit please, He is not to be played with. Oh, that's where you were before. Beg your pardon. He is not to be played with. I'm sorry, I'm really leading you astray tonight, aren't I? Um, Here's a a lad and he runs away from God. Sorry, I better not use you as a visual aid. You've already done your bit in the song. Um, (laughs) Sorry, the song. Um, You know, God hurls a storm at him. He hurls more storms at him. He pursues him. He wants to commit suicide by being thrown in because he'd rather be dead than be a missionary. And and the Lord appoints a fish who swallows him. I mean, I was brought up on cod liver oil. I mean, that is awful. (laughs) A fish's stomach. I mean, you know, it's almost as good as Acts 10, isn't it? I mean, it is an amazing story, this. And then he repents. You know, I'd have prayed, I think, the moment I saw the fish open his mouth, but not Jonah. He's inside. Oh, perhaps I'd better pray. And he does. And and the Lord is pursuing him. And then the Lord says, now will you go, lad? Do as you're told, boy. I'm not saving you so that you can sit on your backside and do your own thing. I'm saving you so that you can do my thing with my burdens for a lost world. This is a God who is not to be played with. This is a God who gives warnings of judgment. I was encouraged this morning about the the eclectic nature of your sermon with bits stolen from all sorts of different, borrowed from all sorts of Christian traditions. I wondered if you were going to sing the Vanity. um, It's not nothing to do with pajamas. The the Anglican uh, psalm that they sing at the end of the Bible readings. And it's, come, let us sing to the Lord. And then they have a bit that some of the churches are not so earnest, leave out. It says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Because those who do that will never enter into my rest. Psalm 95. You remember? 
God gives warnings that there isn't forever and that time is urgent. Warnings, fierce warnings of judgment. This is the God we deal with. This is the God we belong to. He is kind, extraordinarily kind. And we have to hold these two things in tension when we communicate with people. We can get so angry with people who are wicked, like Nineveh, like Jonah was angry, and we don't represent the God of grace and compassion one whit. On the other hand, there are others who are so soft that they're not prepared to share that it really is urgent for us to do as we're told and for the lost to be saved. Now, if that's what God is like, let's look at the person God uses, which is quite interesting. The person God uses is Jonah. You can read more about Jonah, a little more about Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14, where it tells us that he was greatly used in his own society when his own society was rather like ours, going profoundly off the rails with government people making all sorts of wild and strange decisions, what Peter we saw called yesterday the ignorant talk of foolish people when he was talking about the state. And we're in that sort of situation, and Jonah was in that sort of situation. And in his own country, he prophesied, and what he said as he proclaimed the word of the Lord worked because God made it work. In other words, he was not a novice, he was somebody with a proved ministry as a man of God who was greatly needed in his own country. He was a gifted believer. He'd heard God speak in verse 1. He'd lots and lots of initiative. Well, he did use it, didn't he, to get to Spain instead of Iraq. And he was even able to travel. He's a gifted believer, a needed communicator, greatly used in Israel. You need somebody like that to tell a place like Nineveh, don't you? Not somebody who's never explained the gospel to anybody. He's a man with resources. He actually had the financial resources to travel. The trouble was he used it to go 2,000 miles in the wrong direction. He is set up. He spent it all on a holiday trip to Spain. What was Jonah like? He's a good guy. Well set up. He's also, secondly, rather emotionally vulnerable, isn't he? He's afraid, so he runs away from God's plans. You see that in chapter 1, don't you? In chapter 4, he's an angry believer. Have you ever got mad with God? Or with what's happening in God's church? Or the odd sort of people that keep turning up, that keep meaning that David is changing the way you do things here? It can be even more complicated if you go some other place. He gets depressed, does Jonah? He's angry, he's frightened, he's depressed. He says, I wish I were dead. I really would be better up. Come on, take me away, Lord. This is, this is a lousy life and I'm fed up with it. 
in, in talking like this, he's actually been quite a normal sort of missionary. I'm not kidding you. I've done some ministry amongst quite a lot of them. It's quite amazing how easily people get depressed and frustrated, angry, or just plain frightened. And Jonah is just like that. You see, the book's wonderfully honest. And yet I want you to see in relation to this boy that he is not just emotional, he is profoundly self-centered. And God uses a lovely visual aid to demonstrate it, doesn't it? Here he is, he's decided he's going to sit apart from the Iraqis and he's going to watch what's happening. And it's, it's, it's that sort of filthy sort of heavy heat that you get in a tropical place where you are permanently dripping sweat and the Lord in his kindness does a sort of instant plant that sort of shoots up and oh, I've got shade. And then the Lord, I love once I heard a Scottish design, divine and he said the Lord ordained a worm. <laughs> he felt that was a justification for his own ordination but... <laughs> The Lord appointed a worm, and the worm was appointed to eat. And then the Lord appointed a hot wind, and, and the plant shrivels up and dies. Now, I'll let you into a secret. Um, my hobby is growing orchids. I'm always afraid when I go away, because I think possibly my wife is going to kill them. Um, <laughs> You know, when you get a precious orchid and you, you've really given you a lot of pleasure and it decides to curl up and die, you, you, you do have a bit of fed-upness. I mean, not quite like Jonah's, I wish I were dead. But So I do identify a little bit with Jonah. I can get passionate about plants. But this boy, you see, he doesn't care a fig about Iraqis, but he can sit down and cry over a plant that shriveled up and died. I mean... It is amazing, isn't it? And yet, often when you, you think about what are the things you really get uptight about? You know, my washing machine's gone and broken down again. I mean, it is amazing what we get emotional about. If we get emotional about people, it's usually when, when they're in a box and we can't do anything more for them. And there is this awful self-centeredness about Jonah. The important thing is not what's happened to the Iraqis, but how I'm feeling. That's what matters. This sort of syndrome comes to folk on the mission field, just as it comes to us. I mean, afterwards, you're probably not that sort of church because you're too serious, but so many churches I go to, you know, afterwards people nudge one and I say, did you enjoy that? And you think, that really is the most important thing to ask after a sermon, isn't it? Was it fun? You think, what sort of game are we playing with God? That the most important thing is that we're comfortable and that we're pleased and that the things we want are the things we've got. Now, the Lord is kind and he does give us a lot of things. I'm not knocking that. But I'm just saying the awful thing about Jonah is he's profoundly self-centered. And actually, when you get down to it, he's moderately racist, isn't he? 
I mean, you know, he's seen Iraqis get saved and he's fed up. Why did it have to be Iraqis? I'm not interested in Iraqis and you're going and blessing them. What sort of God are you? Well, I know you're going to do that, but I didn't want to be involved in that sort of thing. And then he's got brothers and sisters in Iraq now. So what does he do? He goes to a mission station separated from everything. I don't want to be mixing with them. Can't understand a word they say properly. Well, he could understand them because he could preach to them. He's angry about the call to Nineveh. He's angry at their salvation. He's unwilling to belong with them. Now, now look. We come to God with our gifts, our resources, our experience, our vulnerability, our selfishness, our prejudices, And if we come as we are, God may surprise us as he did Jonah. Because just look as I end at God's work in Jonah. It's a story of God's amazing commitment to an ordinary, be patient, God hasn't finished with me yet type of believer. It's a story of God mobilizing him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you think about it. I'm sorry, I'm going to use you. The the, the Lord says, I've got a work to do in Iraq. I know what it's like, but actually, would you do it with me? Isn't that stunning? I mean, he wasn't like mission boards who don't often have much of a clue about the candidate that's applied. I mean, God knows Jonah through and through and still says, I want you to do this job for me. I want you to do it with me. And then you've got this lovely example of the violence of the covenant, the way that God will not let that boy go and pursues him. The extraordinary perseverance of God because he knows that he has made Jonah for exactly this sort of ministry. And though Jonah would run away and think that the will of God for him is is lousy and imperfect and thoroughly undesirable, God knows that it's good and acceptable and perfect for him and he's pursuing him. Jonah was not indispensable, but God was determined to do things with him. And then you get this most, to me, one of the most beautifully moving things in the whole book. Jonah goes into Nineveh, this unwilling missionary who doesn't specially love Iraqis, and he delivers God's message, and it's the rough bit of the message. You've only got 40 days to sort yourself out. And there is this amazing little phrase in verse 5 of chapter 3. The Ninevites believed God. Isn't that startling? It doesn't say they believed Jonah. They believed God. When Paul went to Thessaloniki, he, he made this lovely comment. He said, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, 
you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you. That to me is absolutely stunning. Do you believe that? That you can go and take a message to somebody, even to a foreigner, and they will hear God. They will trust God because even you did that. It always leaves me gobsmacked when it happens. And sometimes the Lord seems to let me have to wait 40 years before I know it's happened. And then somebody says, do you remember that thing? That's when God got hold of me. And sometimes it's in the worst possible sermons that I've preached. Like one I did at Oxford where afterwards they went to the back to the the, the guy on the recording desk came forward and the leader of the service said, no, scrap it. I mean, in front of me. Uh, and God was actually dealing with somebody there. That's the sort of God that we have. He's also wanting not only to use you, but to refine you. Do you notice the way he says to Jonah several times, uh, do you do well to be angry? And I love the way Jonah says, too right I do. You know, yes, of course I'm angry. I said, really? And then God says to him, uh, you're very upset about this plant, aren't you? What do you what do you think I should feel about Nineveh? You know, I've put so many people there. I've invested them with animals and things and provision. God doesn't just want to save the outsiders. He wants to work to refine the worker too. And all of us and all the missionaries we send out are work in progress with that sort of God. But to me, the most wonderful thing about this book is the way that God doesn't give up on us. Isn't it? It doesn't end all happily ever after, does it? Well, it's a Bible book, not a, not a children's fairy story. It's work in progress. And so my last point is this. Will you please notice the grace of God in the missionary call? The missionary call is for messy believers because there are no other type of believers this side of glory. That's why, as I said this morning, the call to do things with God for a lost world is a mark of God's grace. It's very kind of him to let us do things with him. But the book of Jonah also says, it is an inescapable call. Don't run away. He will pursue. I wrote a prayer about this, which will come on the screen. And since you're used to doing these things here, I wonder if we might say it together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed that you are willing to work in and through us. Yet we often flee from the challenge of mission, caring little for the cost. 
and taken up with concern for our comfort rather than for your glory. Forgive us and pursue us by your Holy Spirit until we gladly give ourselves again to you and to those who need to hear the good news of Jesus. For the sake of your reputation in this lost world, we pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.